Father, we are grateful that the hope which we have in Christ is not just a wishful thought. It's a very real presence because it's a real person, the living God, our Savior, Jesus. We thank you that you have given him to us. You sent him. He died for us while we were still sinners. He conquered death, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now sits at your right hand until you call him to return. We're thankful while we wait for his return or our calling home that you've given us the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ who indwells us who are in Christ, who opens our eyes and ears to see, who gives us the ability to think rightly and feel rightly, who makes us more and more like our Savior. And Lord, as we open up this portion of your holy word, the very sermon that Jesus preached, recorded by Matthew in 5, 6, and 7. We rejoice that we have the freedom to open this word, that we have the confidence that you will show us what we need to see even today, and you have the power and ability to enable us to build on the foundation, which is Christ, who is our Lord. We ask that you would bless this time of the preached word, that it would press deep into our hearts and souls, transforming us even this hour. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We are in the gospel of Matthew, where we are beginning a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon recorded by Matthew in chapters five, six, and seven. Paul Goebel kicked us off last week, and this morning I am going to read through of Matthew 5, 1 through 12, each of the Beatitudes, giving a general overview, and then in the weeks to come, we'll be taking one of these Beatitudes at a time and unpacking them. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The first time I ever came across Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was when the man who the Lord used to lead me to Christ and then to disciple me throughout high school and early college had challenged me to memorize scripture. And what tool we used in June of 1982 was Navigator's topical memory system where you would memorize two verses a week and eventually you would memorize 60 verses. And I wanted to please him and impress him so bad. I was faithful doing that, motivated often by the wrong things, not even knowing yet they were wrong but the word of God went in me and it's stuck. It's still there, the way that system works. 
Once we finished the topical memory system, he then said, I want you to memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I said, I will. And the next week at Bible study, I showed up and said, I did it. And he said, you did Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I said, yes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I thought I was good. He said, no, 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 I meant all of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. That's called the Sermon on the Mount. I had no idea. And I thought, that's impossible. I was 16 years old. Well, it's not impossible. I don't want to be legalistic, but I would encourage you, during this season that we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, try to memorize it. In many ways, it's easier to memorize these, these longer passages than isolated verses. He loved Scripture memory so much that when I finished Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we did the book of Galatians. Then we did the book of James. Then we did the book of Ephesians. And then he moved away. And I did not continue as I wished I would have. I wonder how much of the Bible I would know by heart. It's something we all need to think about. The word of God is so powerful. You can memorize it. I would encourage you to think about memorizing all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Our world is a mess. It's been a mess really since Adam and Eve sinned. We know that. But the stuff that we are experiencing in the last couple of years is, is heavy. It's hard. We know that. How do you preach a sermon on happiness in a time that's so dark and doesn't look happy? Well, you must focus on what the word really means. Many of you are aware that the Beatitudes, as they begin with the word blessed, the word in the Greek is makarios, and it means happy. It doesn't mean happy in the shallow sense of the worldly circumstances that we experience or the material things that we might pursue. Because frankly, everything in the world is broken, it's breaking, or it will break. Everything, relationships, health, finances, all of it, none of it's sure, except Christ. And Christ is preaching this sermon. I don't want you to miss what Matthew writes. Verse two, and he, Jesus, opened his mouth. Some of you have been to Israel and you've been shown the place where they think Jesus sat down and preached to his disciples, this message is for his people, it's his disciples. And they're to think that the living God who is fully God yet fully man, he opened his mouth. And if you listen to this sermon or you simply read it from the beginning to end, it takes between 13 and probably 18 minutes. And he covers so many things. But don't forget each time you look at it, he, Jesus, opened his mouth. And what took, in terms of how it's recorded, 15 or so minutes, we will spend 30 weeks, 30 or more sermons, unpacking the things that Christ said, because they matter so very much. And he starts his sermon. He could have chosen any word first, but the word he chose was makaros. It was blessed. It means happy. John Piper's book, Desiring God, is a very powerful book. Many of you have read it. And many of you came across a quote that he used from Blaise Pascal about happiness, probably for the first time when you read his book. Here's what it says as it speaks of happiness. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war 
and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. We all seek happiness. We sin because we think that sin in that moment is going to make us happy. We all seek happiness. But the happiness that Christ is talking about, when he says blessed eight, nine times, he is giving us something that is far more than just a, a list of attributes or things to aspire to be. He's giving us his very word that says, those who are in my kingdom are to possess these things. And as they possess these things in union with me, they're going to experience this happiness, this blessedness. It is not a shallow happiness. It is a happiness that goes deep into the soul with contentment so that even in the midst of the darkest circumstances, as war rages all around you or inside you, physical war and spiritual war, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, a rebellious child, whatever it might be, believers in Christ can say, in him I am blessed. In him, even now, in the midst of what's so horrific, I can say I'm happy. Not in a shallow sense, not in the sense of denying the reality of the pain of what we're seeing in Ukraine and in Russia and in other parts of the world. Not denying it, but recognizing because of who we are in him and the words that he's given us, this is the source of happiness. To understand it, though, we need to know what the word really means. The word blessed, blessed, is one of those words that we throw around all the time. Would somebody pray to bless the meal? Somebody you might talk to and you ask how they're doing, they might say, I'm blessed. And you probably don't even respond. And they might not even really know what they mean by it. Maybe they do. But what does it really mean? James Boyce in his commentary early on does a wonderful job explaining the origin of this word in the English language. He said the word blessed has an interesting background in the English language. In the days of the origin of the English language, when Anglo-Saxon was in use and a number of related dialects were competing for prominence as the common speech, there were more than 35 forms of the Old English word for blessed. These words were based on the Old English noun blood, which meant blood. And what was at stake here, or what was focused here, was the idea of a blood sacrifice. So that when the word bless was initially used, it was talking about consecration. That's why when coming to the Lord's table, you would think about the blessed elements that are there. There's a consecration that's taking place. In time, the word blessed in its earlier form came to be used as a translation for the Latin word benedicere in the Bible and in ecclesiastic speech. And thus, a new meaning was added to the word. This word then in turn had been used to translate the Greek word eulogian, which has to do with eulogy, where you speak well of someone. But in speaking well of someone, this word bless was focused on speaking well of the Lord. So that when we say, blessed be the God, that's what we're doing. So the first part was centered on blood and consecration. The second part was centered on praising God. 
But a third meaning of blessed arose from the fact that the word bless, B-L-E-S-S, and blessed, same spelling, at E-D, were similar in spelling and pronunciation to another ancient English word, the word bliss, one letter difference, and therefore came into a time to assimilate its meaning also. So when we have this word in our own language, it speaks of consecration. It speaks of praise of another, particularly God, but it also speaks of this bliss that is not a shallow bliss, not a happiness that is centered on some circumstances going one way or the other, but on a deep sense of what it means to have a soul deeply content no matter what the circumstances. This is the meaning of the word makarios that we are seeing in Jesus' sermon. Eight times, nine, including the last of the Beatitudes, he says, happy are those. Again, not this shallow happiness, but a deep happiness. Pastor in Toronto, Charles Price, speaks of this list that Jesus gives us. It's a list, he says, that we would never make up. But it is a list, and we love lists. I'm sure we love lists far more than the ones who gathered around that mountain that day with Jesus. But this is not the kind of list as it relates to happiness that we would create. We wouldn't. He writes, the pursuit of happiness is the driving force of our affluent Western culture. However, when you look at the list of ingredients Jesus gives for happiness, there is a big shock in store. This is a strange list to say the least. And many of these qualities appear the very antithesis of what most of us are looking for. The major difference in this list is that Jesus is not talking of qualities in the physical realm, the area where most of us look for happiness, but in the realm of the spirit. The myth of our day is that true happiness is found in satisfying our physical desires, comforts, and appetites. Those desires may be entirely legitimate. In fact, many of the things that you are pursuing in order to make yourself happy are probably not evil in and of themselves. The devil loves to use things that are good to keep us from the great. But on our list, on the list that we might make of things that we think are critical to our life being a life of satisfaction and happiness, many of the things that Jesus gives here would not make that list. Those desires, he writes, Charles Price may be entirely legitimate, but the engine room of each human being is the spirit which is designed to be inhabited and governed by God. Satisfying the body is never the source of true happiness, for it is not the seat of our true appetites. When Jesus gives us this list, he is not speaking in terms of shallow things, like I got the job, I made the team. She said, yes, I got everything I wanted. He is offering a deep, soul-satisfying contentment that is sustained even in the most difficult seasons. A breakup, shattered dreams, a loss, a war. Sinclair Ferguson challenges those reading his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount early on to be honest with themselves about the list that they have created. And we have all done it. Whether you've actually numbered them or not, we all have identified things in our life that we say, this is what 
is necessary for me to be happy. This is what I long to see happen in my children's life, in my friend's life, in my spouse's life, in my pastor's life, that I know would make them happy. So here's his challenge. Ferguson writes, what is your heart set on as vital for your life and your character? It's a great question. What is your life set on that is vital for your life and your character? He goes on, what eight things do you most want to see developed in your life? Perhaps it would be a good idea for you to make a list. Does it compare favorably to Jesus' list and what Jesus says? I think he's right. And I think the way we listen to sermons always demands that we take what we are hearing and continue moving down the road with what we've heard for the sake of being transformed to the glory of God. We don't just wanna sit and listen to a sermon, even just read Jesus' sermon, and then nod him into the truth with no expectation of being transformed. We don't wanna do that as preachers. You don't wanna do that as members of the body of Christ. We want the Holy Spirit to transform us. If we don't, we must deeply question whether we're truly in Christ. That's really important. Jesus has given us a list. Is this the list that matches up well with what your dreams are for your own children? I've never met a parent when asked, what do you want most for your children? Wouldn't eventually say, I want them to be happy. You know what? So does God. It's actually a good thing. You should want your children to be happy. How you define happiness though, your list of eight things and God's list of eight things might look radically different. And if those lists don't match up, whose are you going to put your confidence in? And this is where there's often an enormous disconnect for people who profess to be believers in Christ. The list that Jesus gives us is not something we would say, that's what I'm going for. I wanna be poor in spirit. I want to mourn. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our list typically are made up of things that we can touch, things that we can proclaim about our own status, things that we can put security in. But here's the truth. Everything other than Christ, everything, everything is breaking, is already broken, or will break. Everything, relationships, work, finances, at some level in this broken world, they will not ultimately take you to a place where you can say, I truly am blessed. Jesus gave us these eight beatitudes. Next week, we're gonna take one at a time. The sermon he preached was 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how fast you read. We're gonna spend over 30 weeks. We're gonna soak in this with the hope that the Lord will transform our lives. Julian Russell, I was asked earlier this week if he would, if I would ask him to read scripture next Sunday. And I said, I'm happy to have Julian read scripture anytime. Because Julian Russell, if you don't know him, has a great big voice. For many of you, you think that's what God's voice sounds like. <laughs> and I said, the problem is I'm going to be preaching from one verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you want Julian to come in and 
say that sentence and step down, maybe we save him for when I'm preaching from a longer narrative like the entire book of Leviticus. <laughs> We're going to go one verse at a time through the Beatitudes because this list is something we have to pay attention to. And here's why. I want to give you three things about this list. First, this list is not negotiable. I'm going to tell you one of the wicked, most wicked things about our culture is that we think everything is negotiable. And that includes discipleship. We tend to think that a list like this, well, there's things I like and don't like. This is not a list of the gifts of the Spirit where you might have one or you might not. This list is the list describing the characters, the characteristics that are to be present in all Christians, not some Christians. This isn't a list, even the, the man I quoted a minute ago, Charles Price, he used the word ingredients. This is not a list of ingredients. This is not you going through the line at Chipotle saying, I'd like this and this and this, but not that. The whole list of Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a list for all Christians. And all that is in this list is meant for all of us. You cannot say, I'm going to negotiate. I like that idea of being a peacemaker, but I don't really love the idea of persecution. That's not the way it works. This list is not negotiable, nor is it meant to be for a certain Christian. I really believe some of us think about the range of Christians like we do models of cars. The very first car I ever bought that was brand new was a Honda Accord. I had to choose between a DX, an LX, and an EX. That's all that was offered. And I had to base that on what I could afford. This is not a list for luxury version Christians. This is the expectation of the character for all who are in Christ. That these are the things that we would seek to be because of who we are in Christ, all of us. Secondly, the list here is not natural. The reason it's not on many of our list of what we're really ultimately hoping for, for our child to be happy, is because it's not natural for us to think about being poor in spirit, to thinking about mourning being a blessing. It's certainly not common in our culture for us to think about meekness being an attribute that we should long to be present in all of our lives, especially in the lives of those that we are supposed to train and equip. So this list is not natural. And what that means is you cannot achieve this list in a natural way. Sinclair Ferguson writes, we can be helped through sermons given by preachers we do not know and may never meet. And that's true. In the history of the world, the time in which we're living, no other generation, no other group of people have ever had access to more preaching from those who are dead, to those who are alive, to those whose pulpits are in Toronto, or in Tibet. There are so many ways that we can access so much preaching, so much. Yet I wonder with all that access, do we really look that much more like Christ? Maybe we look smarter and sound smarter, but do we really see these attributes flowing from our life? 
that we really are saying, I long for the things that Christ spoke of in his sermon to be true of who I am. Ferguson writes, we can be helped through sermons given by preachers we do not know and may never meet. But that is not the case with this preacher or his sermon. In other words, you cannot be transformed by the words that Christ spoke over 2,000 words or 2,000 years ago if you do not know the man. If Jesus is not your savior, you cannot become that which he's calling us to. It happens only through an abiding relationship with him where through our union we are transformed. Only those born again can have these characteristics that bring God glory. Now, I want to be clear. Common grace, there are people who are not in Christ who look far more humble and frankly sometimes far more happy than those who are in Christ. So common grace is a reality, but the grace that's necessary for this transformation to take place is necessary. These things are not natural to us. Each characteristic is produced by grace and by grace alone. An overview of these things, lastly, I want to say this. When we, by God's grace, by our union with Christ, have these characteristics, those around us will notice. And they will notice most when the world is at its darkest place. They will notice most when we model what our Savior did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we, as the people of God, in our union with Christ, model the characteristics that he alone could create in us, when we model those things, the world is going to take note. They're going to wonder, what is it that you have? Or what is it that has you that gives you the hope to stand firm? And by God's grace, you'll be able to attest to God's grace. But one final thing. This sermon, as I've mentioned already a few times, if you read it cover to cover, takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Learning to preach, Brian Chapel, who was our Winter Grace preacher, said to me and my classmates over and over again, the most important part of the sermon is the conclusion. The introduction is important, all of it's important, but you need to get their attention and then because the conclusion is the last thing they will hear, you need to make sure it's strong. Well, I am not going to wait 30 weeks to give you the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. Paul and I and whatever other pastor will preach on the Sermon on the Mount will end the same each week. And it's really gonna be a simple question. Are you a wise or are you a foolish builder? Jesus concluded his sermon with these words. Just listen as they would have the first time. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came 
And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's how he ended his sermon. He started with blessed, and he ended with, are you listening? Not did you hear, but are you listening? And listening is when we apply that which we've heard. Listening is when we take that which we heard and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us examine our lives. Listening is when we take all that has been given us through the reading and the preach word and say, God, what do you want to do with it in my life? Listening is when we say, we need to repent. I need to repent. My list is full of things I'm seeking to make me happy that are not of God, that will break, that are broken or are breaking. All of us, every one of us, are tempted to find our happiness in insecure things. This is the word of the Lord, literally, and it's the only secure thing because this preacher preaching this sermon is the sermon. And you and I cannot be changed if we do not know this preacher. And we must continue to ask God for his grace to change us. How will we know? We will know because the winds come, the floods come, the rains come, they beat against the house. Foolish people and wise people hear it. The wise people are the ones who say, I'm gonna build by God's grace on him, always. Because that is a life that is blessed. And that word blessed means happy. Are you happy? Are you happy like this soul-saturated, righteous contentment that is unbreakable? Or are you fleeing and pursuing after things that will never ultimately satisfy? Lord Jesus, I am often overwhelmed when even just for a moment I think about you opening your mouth on this mountainside and saying, blessed. It had to be shocking. That is not the way religious leaders spoke and certainly not the way they started sermons. Father, what's even more amazing is that you still speak. Your spirit is speaking to us even today. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who would say, I do not know that preacher, that today would be the day of them realizing it and coming to saving faith. Lord, I pray that for those who know without a doubt they're in Christ, that we would not see this as merely an academic exercise where we try to become a little smarter about Christianity, but that we would see, see the live union that we have in Christ and that this, your very words, these beatitudes are truly the characteristics that must be present in our life. God, we've already said it's not natural to us. Thank you that you have changed us. Let us believe that truth and become the women and men you've called us to be. Let us not set our hope on anything else 
other than you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.